Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cancer research with Dr. Sulu Gawande. Dr. Gawande is a cancer researcher and author of the book, Revealing the Secrets of Cancer, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. So, Dr. Gawande, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and about your work. I would most certainly do that. Just one request. Please call me Sulu. Uh, okay, will do. <laughs> okay. All right. So, as you said, I'm a cancer researcher. I did my master's and PhD from Cancer Research Institute in Mumbai, India. And uh, once I finished my studies there, I came to the United States. I worked in the University of Pennsylvania and later at Michigan State University. Uh, sometime in late 90s, I joined pharma industry, where I got involved in actual clinical drug development for cancer. And I worked in many functions, um, but mostly towards my last uh, five, ten years of career, I was involved in submission of cancer drugs. And what I mean by that is when any drug is seemed to be working, then all that paperwork has to be submitted to FDA to get approval for using that drug. I was very um, fortunate to work on some extremely good teams. And I can say that I have been involved in approval of drugs for pancreas cancer, kidney cancer, thyroid cancer, to, to name a few. I also conducted lectures and workshops in some countries in Europe, Australia, Japan, India. And I taught the cancer doctors how to analyze the data and how to present it. So that kind of sums up my professional background, Anis, and I hope it's okay if I call you Anis. Uh, yeah, uh, but I think uh, what is very important for me to also tell you who I am as a person. So I grew up in Mumbai, a uh, middle-class family, and I was surrounded by low-income communities. And so from my very childhood, I had a deep connection to the average person and felt a desire to help them. Then also in Tata Hospital where I worked, it was the biggest cancer hospital at that time and the patients were extremely poor, helpless. And when I looked at them as a young person, it had a profound impact on me. So these experiences have stayed with me all my life, even though I have come to a different country. And that is the reason why I decided to write a book for the common person, for the everyday reader. I shouldn't say common person, but for everyday reader, people who do not have scientific background, who do not understand the complexities of a disease like cancer. That's the reason I wrote the book, because I wanted to simplify the science for them. So tell us a little bit more uh, about the book and about some of the secrets that you reveal about cancer within it. <laughs> That's a great question. So the book starts 
assuming that as i said this is for everyday reader so the book starts assuming that people have forgotten their high school biology and i start at the very beginning so to give you an example when i write about leukemias which is blood cancer i actually go on to say in that chapter what blood is what is it composed of what are the different cells when do these cells start multiplying when does it become a blood cancer and starting from there i take people through this journey where i tell them what are the different types and what are how they are treated now anis please understand this book is not a textbook neither is it meant to get people all the knowledge that they need that's impossible to do as you would know yourself as a as a medical person what i'm trying to do here is give people basic understanding of what cancer is try to take away the misconceptions and empower them to understand why this cancer happens and if it happens what are they expected to do with it you know how to manage it so that's the purpose of the book i in the book i also have chapters that people have liked like facing the diagnosis or how to make resolutions when you get cancer to improve your life and i have also added some stories of real people that i happen to meet in india and also over here in uh, because my my entire career last 40 years from my masters i have only worked on cancer and so i have lots of stories and i i like to tell stories so there are stories in the book and some of my reviewers felt that the human stories in the book is actually the real secret of this book so let's unpack um some of that i i think um some of our listeners may uh have a good idea of what cancer is it's certainly a diagnosis that uh carries with it um a profound uh implications both from a physical and emotional standpoint um but maybe we can start off by asking one of the questions that many people ask which is what causes cancer why did i get cancer uh is is a question that many cancer patients uh, frequently ask especially when uh they may not have any of the known risk factors for that particular cancer so um maybe you can talk a little bit about that absolutely that's that's exactly why we need a book that explains these things and you know the question you are saying occurs to almost every patient so let's first think about what is cancer and i'm just going to sum it in one line not too much but cancer literally happens from one cell that's all you know it's one cell from the trillions of cells in our body that gets affected the dna is damaged the mutation happens the cell gets out of its normal order of doing the work and quietly dying and begins to divide now when that happens other cells other processes in the body either try to repair this cell or to kill it when none of that works the cells is able to have daughter cells and that leads to a lump and that's lead to the cancer so i want people to understand that the cancer comes from the cell in their own body not from somewhere outside now when we talk about causes of cancer 
anything, any cause ultimately has to lead to this kind of DNA damage. Without that, there will be no cancer. So, when we discuss causes, we think of something we call carcinogens, agents which are capable of harming the cells, changing the genetic makeup. And some of these are very well known. We know cigarettes are, um, you know, main culprit and has have caused a lot of deaths because of lung cancer. Then there is UV rays from sun or even man-made radiation which can lead to uh, cancer, have, have capacity to damage the DNA. In addition to that, more recently, I mean, there are many other chemicals and other agents and I don't want to go through that list. I'm just giving you an idea. But in addition to this, more recently what has happened is our diet, what we eat and how we live, that has become more and more associated with cancer. So one of the uh, things where I get a lot of pushback is alcohol. People just don't agree to accept that alcohol can cause cancer. But now CDC has very clearly said that alcohol can lead to cancer. Then eating red meat, eating processed meat, these are things that can lead to cancer. And overall, our lifestyle, um, not exercising enough or putting on a lot of weight, these have been closely associated with cancer. Now, I want people to understand that it is very difficult to pinpoint the exact cause of cancer because we can never find a cell that started all this and what happened and how it escaped this process. So, I usually give an example of an infectious disease. Like, for example, you ate some bad food and you get diarrhea. And you know that it is because of that food you got it. And sometimes you can even repeat the experiment, you know, just to confirm that it was the food that was re responsible. So it is easy to establish the cause and effect in many diseases, but not so in cancer. Because the process, first of all, is hidden in our body. Secondly, it takes such a long time. And that's the reason people feel as you said, that I didn't have any risk factors, that may not be true. Now, having said that, I also have to acknowledge here that there are certain cancers which are which happen because those defective genes are inherited. Uh, these numbers, as as we are learning more and more about cancer, these numbers are going down. The numbers of inherited cancers and the prevalent thought these days is at least 50%, but maybe sometimes 75% of cancer can be avoided. And so, you know, you clearly touched on a number of ways that we can uh, reduce our risk uh, in terms of avoiding smoking and alcohol, red and processed meats, etc. But the other question that frequently comes up is with regards to screening. Um, we know that the screening guidelines continue to change, and sometimes people are of the perception that um, if they didn't get screened, that is what caused the cancer, or 
Conversely, if they get screened uh, regularly as uh, recommended, um, that they can avoid cancer. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that might be not quite right? Yes, of course. So I think screening is extremely important. uh, But as you yourself will know, Anis, we have screening available only for very few cancers. The most important among those are colorectal cancer, that of intestine, where we can do colonoscopy or we can taste the frank blood in the stools, Uh, blood in the stools, not always frank, Um, and then mammogram. So these are known. I think it is important to do the screening as prescribed because cancer is one disease where if you catch it early, the chances of curing it increase tremendously. Because what is cancer? This cell which grows also has the ability to travel through bloodstream or through lymph into other organs. And when cancer spreads, it becomes extremely challenging to treat it or control it. And what screening helps us do is it helps us find a cancer much earlier. So I I think, no, screening doesn't cause cancer. Screening actually helps us find the cancer early and thereby protects us. And all over the world currently, there are many tests going on. Just today, there is a news in BBC, uh, just of the praise that there is a blood test, which they hope will be able to detect some uh, cancer types by looking at few things in the blood. And I, again, I don't want to go into the complex science, but we are continuously looking for screening methods to find the cancer early. Yeah. So uh, we certainly are making great strides in terms of cancer, but right now we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the secrets of cancer with my guest, Dr. Sulu Gawande. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their survivorship clinic is a resource for cancer survivors and provides patients and their families with information on cancer prevention, wellness, supportive services, and health research. SmiloCancerHospital.org. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sulu Gawande. We're talking about The Secrets of Cancer, her new book. 
Um, And right before the break, Sulu, we were talking about kind of the diagnosis of cancer, uh, prevention in terms of risk reduction and screening. I want to delve now into the actual diagnosis and treatment. Um, What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions about um, the actual diagnosis and treatment of cancer? And and how have you tried to demystify that uh, in the book? Cancer diagnosis carries with it, first of all, a lot of emotional trauma. So I have talked about both the physical and the emotional aspects of cancer diagnosis in my book. Each diagnosis is going to be very different. And I take examples of the most common cancers like breast cancer and lung cancer and try to explain to people that these terms like breast cancer has many other levels to it. So which kind of cell is involved, how much the cancer has paid, how big is the lump, all these things matter. In the end, what I try to tell people is we are having more and more advanced therapies to uh, treat all these cancers. One other layer that has come in the diagnosis of cancer in the recent uh, times in the last 15 years or so is we are able to look at the biomarkers which means the expression of what these DNA mutations the changes in the cells are doing and when that happens the doctors are able to target these. I want to tell you a very interesting story here. May I Anis? So, so, so about 20 years back, there was a blood cancer, chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML. And about only one in four patients could live to see five years mark. So, it was quite deadly. And then in the diagnosis, when they were looking, they found out that the cells of these particular cancer, the damaged cells, produce a particular protein. And scientists specifically developed a drug that could stop the production of this protein. And it was like magic. You know, the patients which could not live five years, now they are going on and on. All they do is take one single or whatever, you know, their doses. But they take oral medication and they are living completely normal life for years together. So this drug called Gleevec, is called magic bullet. The reason I'm explaining this is when today a cancer is diagnosed, it's not only breast cancer, lung cancer, or something like that. It is also, is it HER2 positive breast cancer? Because if it is, then there is a different targeted medication compared to which is not positive, which is ERPR positive and so on. And this may sound like alphabet soup, But actually, these are the short names which are given to the expression of these genes. And that's why today's patients have a lot more understanding about their cancer and a lot more effective treatment to take care of it. Yeah, I I think that's such a great story in part because it talks about the fact that, you know, we are continuing 
to develop new cancer diagnostics and therapeutics. And a lot of that really has to do with clinical trials. You mentioned before the break that you had transitioned uh, from uh, the research world and academe to uh, pharma um, and had some experience in terms of bringing drugs to market. I think one of the issues that uh, some patients may have is with regards to clinical trials. Can you talk about some of the misperceptions um, that people may have around uh, clinical trials and, and try to alleviate some of their anxiety with regards to that? Absolutely, absolutely. You, you. This is my favorite topic. And actually, I have two chapters in my book. The first chapter is on preclinical research, which goes on to show how much efforts are taken to find new drugs for cancer. And we have drugs coming from the deep sea sponges and from yew trees in somewhere in the Arctic forest. And you, you just name it. I mean, you, it is like the scientists have combed the nature and gone so far wide and deep to look for medications. But even after that, it's a very long exercise to see if this is going to be something effective against cancer and if so, against which cancer because we have more than 100 types of cancer. So after the preclinical research is done and if there is some indication that this could be a useful chemical, that's when the clinical trial begins. And clinical trials are done under extreme supervision and also in, um, how should I say, collaboration with regulatory agencies. So the protocols that are written for clinical trials always take into account the patient's well-being. If the patient has any other treatment that's going to benefit them, such patients are not taken when there is a, an extremely new drug that is tested. There is something called informed consent form. And I usually say my book is written at the level of informed consent form. What it means is everything, all the possible benefits and more importantly, all the risks and how the drug works, all this is written at the level of, I think, 8th to 10th grade education. And patients have to fully understand it and sign upon it. So no, nothing is done behind the scene in the dark. I mean, just to conclude, I will say patient is at the center of clinical trial. Patients' rights are very carefully and conscientiously protected. And in order for our research, our, our ad advances in treating cancer, we do need to engage patients in clinical trials and those patients also benefit. Many times it has been found that the clinical trial make made available a drug to patients who had no other hope. So I strongly encourage patients to take part in clinical trials. Yeah. And certainly we know that clinical trials not only offer some patients who have no other options, uh, an option, a viable option, but even for patients who do have other options, oftentimes there are clinical trials that they may be eligible for that actually are trying to advance uh, the science and, and bring new uh, drugs and new therapies to market. One of the other questions I think that comes up is that many patients may be 
apprehensive or scared about drugs in general. The concept of chemotherapy seems to be something that is very anxiety provoking. But when you talk about deep sea sponges or yew trees, that seems so much more appealing to many patients. <laughs> now, you uh, did some of your training and grew up in India, and um, many people may be drawn to the idea of Ayurvedic or natural or alternative or complementary medicines. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those items and how they may or may not fit into the uh, treatment paradigm uh, in terms of cancer management? Yes, absolutely. So I have a chapter in the book which says, Can Cancer Be Cured by Miracles? And in that chapter, I also address this question. So a couple of things here, Anis. One thing is when you asked me previously about clinical trials, and there is such a large um, burden on the sponsor or the drug maker to show that the drug is effective. I mean, we literally, it goes through four stages of development, continuously preparing the evidence. I have never seen any other alternative therapy giving that kind of foolproof evidence that they can cure cancer. It's only anecdotal. And that makes me extremely scared. I don't, why it makes me scared is because when people try to pursue these kind of alternative methods, they're losing precious time. I have said a couple of times earlier that in cancer, it is very important to find it early, hopefully before it has spread. And that gives the best chance of curing it or at least effectively managing it. When patients go looking for miracles or alternative therapy, thinking that, oh no, chemotherapy is too toxic, I don't want to do it. That's when they are taking an extremely big risk for their life. I mean, again, I want to tell you one story. So I think sometimes in 1960s, there was a patient with really bad testicular cancer. And testicular cancer happens to young people. That time, people used to die very quickly. And I have worked in Lily. I have spent many years in Indianapolis. And I know at that particular time, there was a doctor in Indianapolis who had a clinical trial for a new drug called cisplatin. And he asked his patient, will you take part in it? And the patient felt he was, I think, in his 20s and said, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to die in a few months anyway. Why not? And this patient is still alive. I think he's about 80 years old now. So that was the first time in a clinical trial, cisplatin was found to be effective. And all the information about this clinical trial is still retained. I'm yet to see that level of methodical uh, trials and planning for any other alternative therapy. Yeah, I, I think that many patients sometimes will hear about or read about um, perhaps not miracle cures, but certainly um, benefit uh, being given by by various alternative treatments. And, you know, for, for some of these things, if they're not toxic, uh, you can uh, do them uh, in tandem with conventional medical management that is evidence-based. But I always recommend to patients that they, they talk to their doctor about uh, 
those kinds of things. Now, the last topic I, I want to delve into is something, Sulu, that you had mentioned before the break, which is really, you know, how do you deal with the emotional part of cancer? Because the physical part is one thing, right? Uh, try to risk reduce, find the diagnosis early, uh, take treatments as prescribed, um, participate in clinical trials. The harder issue, I think, for many patients is the emotional baggage. How do I deal with the idea of my own mortality? How do I tell my children about this diagnosis? How do I manage relationships? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, I feel that, you know, no matter how prepared you are, what age, what education, when somebody hears the word you have cancer, it kind of shakes your life around you. You know, there is a darkness in front of your eyes. So if a person encounters a crisis like cancer, my hope is that they will not waste time in uh, fear or denial, don't feel defeated, and they can have optimism and courage. In the end, everybody cannot be cured. But no matter what happens, don't give up your dignity and humanity. Because really, all that matters is not how we existed, but how well we lived. Dr. Sulu Gawande is a cancer researcher and author of the book Revealing the Secrets of Cancer. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.